gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. Well, good morning, Heritage brothers and sisters in Christ and those visiting today, welcome. As we come into Easter week, this is our anchor passage. Now, this morning, we're going to be in three different passages specifically. I'm going to walk you through those. But let's begin here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 to 17. Beginning in verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy breaks out in didoxology here. There are three key components and then a small testimony sandwiched between them. Jesus Christ came into the world. His incarnation. He comes flesh and blood into this world and he comes physically to the people of Israel and to the city of Jerusalem. For what reason? To save sinners. The cross. He came into this world to save sinners and we're looking at the crucifixion. And then to the king of the ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. The exaltation which begins at the resurrection. In this short doxology, we have the three key components that form the backbone of our faith. A God who came into the world, who died on the cross to save sinners, that is exalted in the heavens. And the Apostle Paul even uses the formula here of Christ Jesus. Instead of Jesus Christ, Christ being his title as Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, who is Jesus, came into the world. The word became flesh And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. And this Easter season. Let us in this passage. Consider the heart of God. Let's consider the heart of God. Over today. Good Friday. Which is this coming Friday at 7 o'clock. We'll be right in here. And then Easter Sunday. Let's consider the heart of God together. Palm Sunday today, we think of the Messiah who came into the world. Yes, he came into the world in his incarnation in Bethlehem. He was born, became flesh. But then he comes into Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday is a special pronouncement. It's not his first time in Jerusalem, but it is a special pronouncement of the arrival of this Christ who has come into the world. We call it the triumphal entry. It's in all four gospel accounts. It's that significant. That the gospel writers want us to see this is the one who has come into the world. Second passage that we're going to look at this morning. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Here is he who comes into the world and now comes to the city of Jerusalem. A moment of immense eschatological and theological importance. Eschatological meaning pointing towards prophecy already given, but also foreshadowing that which is yet to come. 
theological significance because of what it communicates about the heart of God and what he's about to do. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, now Olivet sits east of Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem literally because Jerusalem sits on this ridge line that runs north and south through Israel. And he said to his disciples, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then we come across a curious moment. One of the few times in Scripture where our Lord weeps. And in verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know who had come. You did not know that Christ was here. One of the saddest moments in the Old Testament is when King Saul did not know the Holy Spirit had left him or in Ezekiel when the people of Israel did not know the glory of the Lord had departed the temple and here Jerusalem does not know or see that the Messiah has come. Here we get an interesting insight into his heart. And it provokes me to ask the question, here's a key question for you this morning that I'm going to chase down through the passage. The key question is this, why did he come into the world? He came into the world to save sinners, but why? Why did he come into the world? To save sinners? But what provoked him to save sinners? Why come at all? And why did he ride into Jerusalem that Sunday 2,000 years ago? Why did he come? What does this teach us about his heart? And I'm going to give you half of the big idea right now, okay? Here's the big idea, partially. Why did he come into the world? Why did he come into Jerusalem? Big idea. God has a heart that remembers. God has a heart that remembers. 
But what did he remember? What was on his heart as he rode into Jerusalem? What was on his mind as he descended the Mount of Olives, going down towards the Temple Mount? The last passage that we're going to spend the rest of our morning in this morning, please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. Now it is my desire as we study the Word of God Sunday after Sunday that as we look at the particular passage in which we are studying, that we also draw and connect dots across the Old Testament so you can see the bigger swath of biblical theology at work, how the Bible is revealing to us who God is and how he is working. And we come to Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm a little terrified to address this chapter because after I prepared my sermon, I was reading another theologian and he said he had never heard a preacher ever preach this text. And for good reason. I'm going to try and PGify it because it makes us blush. We blush as we read this chapter. This prophecy given in the 6th century BC, so 600 years before the time of Christ when Ezekiel had been exiled to Babylon and here is going to be an oracle, a prophecy made against Jerusalem. The city that Jesus we find riding into in Matthew 21 and also in the Gospel of Luke. We blush as we read this chapter. But maybe one of the reasons that we do not appreciate the Gospel is because we don't blush enough at our sin. We don't blush to the degree that we should for how we have offended and hurt our God. Ezekiel 16 is a very detailed imagery of an orphan's rise to queen and to royalty and glory. And from royalty and glory into utter debauchery. Now remember this is an image. An image of a husband and a wife it is not a general statement on the morality of men and women that men are more moral and women are not by any stretch of the imagination. No, this is an image using the marital covenant. In Ezekiel 16, this is what we find beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 down to verse 5. And we're going to go through the whole chapter. So I'm going to read it in segments and then summarize and paraphrase other aspects. Verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped with swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. Israel, Jerusalem, your lineage is of no distinction. 
You're no better than the Amorites and the Hittites in terms of where you come from. And no one wanted you. You were orphaned on the day of your birth. You were left out in the open field to die. Verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. God sees this people, this orphan in the field whom no one wants. And out of pure grace and mercy, saw Israel in her death. Saw this people and chose her to, for glory. Chose her to bestow life. And because of God, Israel flourished and became God's special object of affection. We see this. We've been reading through Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 7. This is what God says about Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It's not because you were attractive. It was not because that you made sense, humanly speaking. Matter of fact, you were the fewest people. Nobody would look on you and say, worthy of affection. But God, the great life giver like he does, and this is such a picture of salvation, the orphan wallowing in death to be left alone to die in the field. But here comes God, sees, speaks, and says, live, I give you life. And I'm going to make you flourish. I'm going to put my special affection on you. But then we ask the question, well, but... To whom then will Israel belong? It's been brought to life, no longer forsaken. But to whom will Israel belong? How will Israel be loved? Verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of her love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you. And entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. To spread the corner of the garment is the covering of dishonor with God's own garments. It's to take his cloak and to wrap Israel, clothing Israel with his riches. And then he said, and I made my vow to you. This is a wedding covenant, a vow of love, a vow of commitment, a king loving and marrying the orphan cast off. This is the orphan cast off that's been left to die. But the king marrying the orphaned cast off. I made my vow to you and you became mine. Do you hear the wedding language in this, by the way? Even today when people get married, the language of I belong to you and you belong to me is inherent in the wedding vow. And here God is saying of Israel, I made my vow to you. You didn't make it to me. I made it to you. 
and we belong to each other. There's now a covenant between us. No longer two, but one. A mutual ownership. That's the marriage image. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, going back to that book of the Old Testament. In verse 2 it says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, at Sinai. Deuteronomy 5.4, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a covenant at Sinai. At Sinai, the wedding ring went on the people of Israel. This is a wedding ring that my wife and I, we both have one like it. We brought it in Jerusalem. And in Hebrew, it says, Anil dodi vidodi li. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. At Sinai, the covenant was sealed. This is their God. This is his people. You became mine. In Deuteronomy 5, 7, interestingly enough, the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments, what is it? You shall have no other gods before me. Very first commandment, a commitment of exclusivity. Isn't that what the wedding covenant is? That there shall be no other women but her and there shall be no other men but him? Israel is wed to God in this image. And in this love of covenant marriage, there is nothing withheld by God to Israel. Look at the verbiage here we see in verse 9. I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists, a chain on your neck, put a ring on your, in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord. This is a love where nothing is withheld. He bathes her, he anoints her, he clothes her, he wraps her, he covers her, he adorns her with riches and he crowns her with glory and elevates her so that everyone knows in all of the Middle East, this Israel belongs to Yahweh. Lavish love. And because of God's love, Israel was beautified. Because of God's love, Israel was elevated. Because of God's love, Israel was renowned. Oh, brothers, as a result of your love to your wife, may she be beautified. May she be elevated. May she be known by the man who loves her and the woman 
that she is. All of this in this image is because of the splendor that God had bestowed on you. It was nothing that she did, nothing that Israel did. It was everything that God had done. And indeed, under David and Solomon, Israel reached a golden age of glory, wealth, and beauty. Even recently, they uncovered a Solomonic gate there in Jerusalem where they are absolutely bewildered by its architectural beauty, utterly amazed at its scope and size. The Davidic and the Solomonic kingdoms, the golden age of Israel and one of the golden ages of the ancient Near East, no one has surpassed it. But then in verse 15, we have a breathtaking betrayal of love. A breathtaking betrayal of love. All of Israel's beauty was due to the tender love of God. But Israel will trade that beauty and love, sell her blessings, demean herself, and disdain her wedding covenant. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of the renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. To play the whore or whorings or lavishing whorings or prostitute or to prostitute oneself this is someone, that word whore, the word prostitute, it sounds harsh on our ears for a good reason. Because this is someone who gives or sells their bodies as objects for the enjoyment of sin. This is someone who sells themselves for the enjoyment of that which is against God. So that we can use these words adjectivally in other ways that I prostituted myself with my wealth, I sold my wealth, or I prostituted my time, I sold my time for the enjoyment of that which is evil. But this is a professional aspect in this text. Now the body is sacred. The body is sacred. And it is giving what is sacred for the pleasure of what is evil. Lavished your whorings, the excessive giving of oneself to evil for evil's enjoyment, the giving of the beauty that was given by God freely to his enemies. Took some of your garments, it says. The garments that God gave Israel that covered her shame. Israel takes those garments, that sign of honor given by God, and then uses them to worship other gods. This is the image of the spouse celebrating her lovers with the gifts given to her by her husband. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. Oh, Israel. No one has gone astray like you. 
Verse 17 to verse 23, Israel does not just stop with the garments. It says, your beautiful jewels, which I had given to you, you gave them to your lovers. The embroidered garments, the richness you gave away, my oil and my incense, my bread that I gave you. And then you took our sons and daughters and burned them in the fire to false gods. But this is still not the depths of your wickedness. Verse 23 to verse 26, the depths have still not yet been reached. Because after all your wickedness, verse 23, you made yourself a lofty place in every square. You no longer have any shame. You don't blush. You're free to billboard yourself and promote yourself and what you are. Your beauty has become an abomination. Isn't it amazing that we live in a culture today where abominations are celebrated as something beautiful? Some people say the world has never seen the like. Brother and sister, it never was worse than Ezekiel 16. We just continue to follow and model what Israel did and what humanity continually does. But she's not content with her own evil. She wants to invite others and celebrate others who would sell themselves with her into evil. So it says that she multiplied her whoring with the Egyptians, with the Assyrians. And the violation of this wedding covenant brings great heartache. The violation of any wedding covenant always brings heartache. It may not seem like it in the moment, but it always brings destruction. And in verse 27 to 29, the heartache that is going to come to Israel, and we see it in her history of famine and war, occupation by the Babylonians, and the heartache for God. Can you imagine him? This is, again, the image here of the husband enduring the constant hurts of his spouse and the spouse that incessantly berates him with her evil. Or just swap pronouns and... He berates her with his evil. But the image here is one of God as father and then God as husband in the masculine form because that is who our God is. It talks about him, his, he. And he has given Israel everything. And she continues to hurt him. Verse 30 to verse 34. Look at verse 30. How sick is your heart? You've sold yourself. But get this. You have sold yourself. And it says in verse, in verse 34, but you're different in the way you sell yourself because others sell your, themselves and they get payment. But you sell yourself without payment. In fact, instead of getting payment, you gave payment. You gleefully paid to be used for wickedness. 
Verse 31, you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Israel, there's no one like you, worse in every way. Now I ask the question at this point, what is God's right at this point? What does he have as a right? In what action is God completely justified under the law? He is completely justified to cast off his adulterous wife. He is certainly justified in doing so under the law. He is certainly justified to divorce her and find another. He is certainly justified, even under the law, for her to be put to death. Look at verse 58, please. And verse 59. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. Verse 59, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. You have despised my love. You have despised the marital covenant. You have despised everything I gave you. You deserve to be cast off. Verse 60. Look at the first four words of verse 60. Yet I will remember my covenant. I will remember not her covenant, not her vow. I'll remember my covenant, my vow. This is a marriage covenant based on his promise, not hers. But contrast, even, even think about how we think about marriage today. Contrast how we determine our commitment based on how well they keep their commitment. We're going to love as well as they love. We're going to be committed as long as they're committed But God says, no, I will remember my covenant. I will establish an everlasting covenant. And this is a hint. This is a hint in the Old Testament at a covenant that is going to supersede the first one. One that is more excellent. The first covenant promise was temporary. But there is going to be a second covenant that is going to establish and secure that will never be removed. He says, twice I will establish you. And you will know that I am the Lord. And then this blows my mind. Look at the end of verse 63. I will establish my covenant with you when I atone for you, for all that you have done. I'm going to pay for all of your whorings and prostitutions. It says earlier in Ezekiel 16, she was so evil that the Philistines blushed because of her. It says that Sodom was not as bad as Israel. Let's put that in context. We always go to Sodom and Gomorrah as the ultimate examples. Ezekiel 16 says Israel was worse than Sodom. 
But he's going to come back? A day is coming when the king remembers his covenant? A day is coming when God comes for his bride? When the Holy One who has no debts is going to pay her debt? When the covenant will be made new and it will be everlasting? Ezekiel looks forward to that day in Ezekiel 43 where he says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Now, the Mount of Olives sits to the east. And then one Sunday, 2,000 years ago, over the Mount of Olives comes Jesus. Behold, your king, Jerusalem, is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey. He comes not in vengeance and anger, but he comes in humility. He comes for Jerusalem. He comes for his bride. The hurt and the pain in his heart, I just, we just can't fathom. And that's why when he looks upon Jerusalem in Luke 19, 41, when he drew near the city, he sees the city and he weeps over it. Why? This is the one on whom he lavished his love, put the ring on her finger, rescued her from death. The heartache of where she's been and yet the heartache of what is still yet to come. And yet he is unwavering. Jesus remembers his marriage covenant. His vows of commitment. Here's the second part of the big idea. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did he come into Jerusalem? Because God has a heart that remembers his covenant. He remembers the promise that he made to Israel. And here he comes over the east, down the Mount of Olives. He weeps when he sees her. But he's coming to rescue his bride. He's coming to rescue the one who has rejected him in every conceivable way. And now he looks upon her in chains and in slavery and in death to sin. And he weeps over her. But here he comes over the eastern mountain, down the slopes. He's coming to pay her debt and set her free. And you know what she does? In one final act of hatred and betrayal, in the face of this great love, She murders him. Such grace and love, even through ongoing betrayal. Such as the deep, deep love of the Savior that he would march down to rescue the one who has forsaken him and then turns around and murders him. And yet he's still going to go to the cross and pay the debt, all of her debt, and forge a new covenant that can never be taken away. 
But we'll tell the rest of that account on Good Friday. So don't miss out on what happens. But Ezekiel 16, Israel may be the picture of the bride, brother and sister, but we Gentiles were outside the marriage covenant all together and we had no claim of life or royalty. With Israel, we deserved only the wrath of God. But even in the original covenant with Israel, God had a plan to incorporate the nations, people like you and me, into a new covenant that all who believe and trust in Jesus Christ will have not only the sins of Israel atoned, but the sins of the world. So that at the cross, by the blood of Jesus Christ, a new wedding covenant is sealed, a new bride is forged, and that Jerusalem, one day we look forward to coming out of that. The heavens dwelling eternally with our bridegroom we look forward to that day and if God would come for Israel after everything she's done and still walk down the Mount of Olives he will certainly come for you if you've trusted in Jesus Christ then give great worship That he did not forsake his covenant. He came back. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, how can you reject so great a love? No love has ever been seen like this. This Easter season, we begin with the tragedy. But Sunday's coming. And he will be victorious. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is with great and profound mystery in our hearts that you would hold on so long with adulterous hearts like ours and then crucify your son and atone for our sins, the sins that we murdered him with. May we this Easter season reclaim a vision of the great love and compassion that you have for us sinners. And we look forward with great anticipation that Sunday is coming. The light will break. And one day, one day, one day you're coming back again to bring us all the way home. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.